0: Welcome to Liftoff, from your friends at Relay FM. brought to you this time by Squarespace. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where
1: you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jason Snell. It is
0: Never Aliens, Stephen. It's not. Not this week, either. Tune back in next time. Nope. Well, just, it's still Never Aliens, but yes, you can check back. (laughs)
1: <laughs> uh, I wanted to say real quick before we get started, uh, Jason, you you and I were traveling together a couple of weeks ago. I did a live show in Chicago, and then we did one in New York, and uh, we met several Liftoff listeners, so if you said hello, uh, thank you, and I got this amazing gift in New York of a 3D-printed Mercury capsule with the faces of the women featured in hidden figures on the sides, which is really cool. It's on my shelf in my office now, so uh, thank you for everyone who stopped and said, hey, I want wanted to talk about space with us. It's always nice to find those uh, the liftoff people out there. You're you're our favorites. <laughs> uh, we have sort of a, a grab bag, so it's really been yeah. a month since we've done a, a real episode because we did the Apollo Seven episode, and that was sort of uh, you know no news or anything, just dedicated to that. So this is a little bit of a catching up on some stuff, and there's a, there's lots of stories we're not even going to get to, but sort of what we felt like we wanted to to talk about over the uh, over the last couple of weeks. I wanted to start and point people to a video done by the Verge Science. Um, It's a section of the Verge. They have this really great YouTube channel, and they have a video up where they work to decode the content on the Voyager's uh, golden records so we spoke about this and we, we, we've spoken about voyager in the past that these records uh when played and there's all this like diagram like on the cover of like this is how fast you rotate them and this is like where we are in space and it's all this all this wild stuff and uh they, they used a method documented by ron berry to decode the images because they're just audio and the, the images are encoded within the audio and you you can actually now uh thanks to mar technology like run that through uh through a computer and like dump out all these values from the audio and boom you get an image uh really I watched the whole thing it was super fascinating and uh, I think I think people will find it interesting
0: yeah it, it, you get to pretend to be an alien and walk through the thought <laughs> process of like what are they doing here like yeah, it turns out 40 years later technical decisions made by our own species sometimes can be kind of puzzling but mm-hmm. they uh, we assumed I think Carl Sagan and everybody else they, they assumed a level of, uh, of of intelligence on the part of whatever aliens will find the record absolutely so, uh, uh,
1: yeah. it, it, if this gets uh, discovered by like some sort of like uh, you know ooze type life uh, it's not, they're not going to get far with that it, it no. requires some, some uh, critical thinking if you yes. will some problem solving. Mm-hmm.
0: Should we talk about broken hardware in space now? Uh, yeah, sure. Let's, let's oh, we got that. a lot of that this time. We got a lot of that. Um, the Hubble Space Telescope went into safe mode because it turns out gyroscopes um, are super important and also sometimes break. And it, uh, the Hubble went into safe mode because it had a gyroscope problem Um, And it already had a bad gyroscope. And and I think we might have even mentioned that a month ago. That might have been long ago enough that we had mentioned that. But they have brought it back to life, went back to life on October 26th. Um, They brought a wonky gyroscope back online that had been shut off. They told Hubble to do a whole bunch of different maneuvers, different turns, switch the gyro between different operational modes. And it passed the test. It apparently cleared whatever blockage between components had made it a sticky gyro so it is now back to uh three fully functional gyros with uh normal operations which is nice yeah absolutely you know it it is a a picture of our future that hubble will not last
1: forever yeah and we can't fix it so mm -hmm. yeah because we don't have a space shuttle anymore to fix it we do not have Mm -hmm. a space shuttle anymore Oh uh, yeah, the the story uh, on NASA's website is pretty fascinating. You know, like this the idea, like that w- the the picture that came to mind is like, oh, like I have a, uh, you know, like something like something like stuck in a jar, and if I shake
0: it the right way, it'll come out. <laughs> like, kind of just shook the Hubble a little bit and worked this gyroscope free. Yeah, uh, like if you've got a little metal shaving or I don't who knows what in there, you just kind of move move it a bunch. I mean, it's like sometimes you have that with a piece of hardware where you. You bang on it, or you uh, you rattle it, or, or or something like that, and then it just starts working again. Where there's something going on in there, and 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 you manage to kind of clear it, at least for the time being. It'll probably come back, but uh, so Hubble's Hubble's still up and running, and it uh, it's finding things. Yeah, yes, <laughs> it's it's been back up uh, for a few days
1: now, and one of the first things that that came back was and there's no way around this. Uh, it's a smiley face. Yep. <laughs> No way around it. So this is uh, there'll be a link in the show notes you can go look at it. Uh, Hubble is looking uh, with its wide field camera into uh, this uh, patch of galaxies. So each of these like light points, it's not a star; it's it's an entire galaxy for the most part, uh, most of them. Uh, and there are two uh, yellow hued uh, sections, and then a lower arc. You know, think uh, think a smiley face, two eyes and a smiley face. Uh, it's thought that the 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 galaxy we're seeing that looks arc that that is due to gravitational lensing, which we've yeah. spoken a lot about. Basically, as light travels near a massive object, uh, it gets distorted and bent due to that object's gravity. And it seems like maybe that's what's going on here. But it's totally. uh, it's sort <laughs> of just a funny funny other thing you look at it and there's there's no question about it it's what it is
0: yeah it definitely looks like if you look at the smiley part of it you can see how it's like a galaxy that's been distorted in some way almost certainly might even be one of the other galaxies in the vicinity that has uh, has gotten distorted or it could be behind and being curved around but yeah it's a smiley smiley face it's nice um, the uh, you know it you could say that it's made up of the formations of distant galaxies or you could say maybe it's the emotions Of distant galaxies. Oh, boy. Or maybe not.
1: I'm going to go with not. I'm going to shoot shoot you down. Fine. Do it. Fine. (laughs) But, yeah, so so Hubble's back up and running, and, uh, you know, this, all in NASA's language is like, it will serve, you know, alongside the James Webb, and, you know, it's got years ahead of it. And hopefully that's true. Uh, We do know that through this uh, series of events that Hubble can run on fewer gyroscopes than initially thought you know it needs three fully functioning ones for the level of of control they have now but it can run on fewer and and fewer just limits what they can do with it so yeah
0: they got they got a plan for the inevitable failure of a gyroscope that they can't bring back by you know shaking it yeah (laughs) shake it out can we talk about non- Broken space hardware for a second. Okay, but I promise uh, we're going to get back to broken space hardware because there's more of it. But yes, let's talk <laughs> about is. let's talk about some non-broken hardware. I there is
1: oh, one of my favorite things on liftoff is to check in with missions sort of in real time. So we did this with Juno when it got to Jupiter and did its its first uh, science orbit, and then of course there was the issue with the thruster and covering all of that and how they had to uh, quite literally change course with that mission. It's still getting science done, but not in the way necessarily anticipated uh, but the Parker Solar Probe is uh, basically as we're speaking wrapping up uh, or just wrapped up its first uh, pass over the sun so this is after it broke the record for being the closest human-made object to the sun uh, the old record by the way was 26.5 million miles about 42.7 million kilometers uh, from the sun and on November 5th it traveled a mere 15 million miles, or 24 million kilometers, uh, f- from the sun, traveling at an enormous rate of speed—213 213 miles, uh, 213,000 miles per hour—and this is one of what should be 24 of these uh, of these trips. So, again, referencing Juno, the idea is you're—it's going to. Um, Swing away from the planet and come in, uh, basically like fast and hot, and get a close orbit, and then and then go back out. This is a very common maneuver in this sort of spacecraft. We saw it uh, with Juno, we saw it with Cassini to a degree, and the Parker Solar Probe is on a similar trajectory where it is going to uh, over the the next uh, you know couple of years do these uh, these orbits. It's going to do twenty four of them in total. And so the, the first one is has been completed. And all the instruments we spoke about, you know, measuring the particles streaming off the sun, you know, seeing what particles are actually in the solar wind, how fast they're moving, how they interact with each other. Uh, all of that is is underway now. And it, it's, you know, it's so funny. I felt like the Parker Solar Probe launched not that long ago. But when we spoke then, how quickly uh, it was moving on its uh On its initial trajectory, that it was launched atop a very powerful rocket. And one of the reasons was to get as much speed as possible
0: right out of the gate. And it's funny because we talk about the Mercury probes and how it'll take years to get there because the sun complicates things for getting around Mercury. When you're going around the sun, that's that's easier. That's easier. So it's 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 there now. And uh, the challenge is surviving when you're that close to the sun. So, you know, it battens down the hatches when it goes around It makes measurements. It can't radio back to Earth. It has to wait until sort of it comes clear and it's further away from the sun and then it reports back. And, uh, you know, and we'll keep doing this. So, you know, we'll see what we get out of this first pass. And there might be some interesting things, interesting data, interesting imagery even. But um, there's much, much much, much more to come from the Parker Solar Probe.
1: Absolutely. It's just just the first chapter. Of, yeah. uh, uh, hopefully it'll be a very successful mission. Uh, we do have some more stuff to talk about, including our impressions and thoughts on First Man. Uh, we we both have seen that now, but I want to tell you first about our, our sponsor this week. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Squarespace. Make your next move with Squarespace. It lets you easily create a website for your next idea with unique domain name, award-winning templates, and more. So think about what you want to build. Maybe it's an online store or a portfolio to show off your work, or maybe you just want to write a blog. Well, Squarespace is the in one platform that lets you do uh, just that. It actually lets you do all of that stuff on the same site if you want. And the best part is there's nothing to install. You don't have to worry about versions of this and versions of that. There's no patches. No upgrades are needed. You just don't have to worry about that kind of stuff because Squarespace has got it covered. They have award winning 24 7 customer support if you need any help. And again, they allow you to quickly and easily grab a unique domain name and partner it with one of those award winning templates that are beautifully designed for you to show off your great ideas. Uh, at Relay FM, we use Squarespace for our blog. So anytime we have an announcement about a new show or something's changing, we're going to go on tour, uh, we can write a blog. I like to write in Markdown, so I can write in Markdown right in the browser, drag images in, embed a video, whatever I need to do very quickly and easily. Then I can go back about my about my workday. I don't have to be a webmaster to update our blog, and that's really great. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a trial with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com slash liftoff. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain name and to show your support for this show. Once again, that's squarespace.com slash liftoff and the code liftoff to get 10% off your first purchase. We thank Squarespace for their support of this show. Squarespace, make your next move, make your next website.
0: All right, Stephen, it's time for Broken Spaceships again. Yeah. Back to the Broken Spaceships. We reveled in the Parker Solar Probe actively doing what it's uh, been designed to do. But we have to say goodbye to a couple of NASA missions that have, have ended, the first of which being Kepler. We talked to Natalie Battaglia on this show about what they did with the Kepler mission, finding exoplanets and what they were doing with the K2 mission, which was basically their spacecraft broke and they found a way, talking about keeping Hubble around on two gyroscopes, they found a way to keep it going with much more uh, difficulty, with limited control. But now it has has literally run out of gas. And so Kepler is done. But what an array of accomplishments it is responsible for discovering 2,600 confirmed planets, exoplanets, and almost 4,000 exoplanet candidates. I mean, keeping in mind that when Kepler went up there, we could count... It, the number of exoplanets was in tens, maybe, maybe even hundreds, but I think it was in like dozens at most. There was a very small number. It has dramatically revamped how many. Uh, Exoplanets we've known, and it really was only looking at a very small patch of space. Which there are follow-up missions on the way, um, but uh, Kepler wraps it up with 678 gigs of data collected, (laughs) 530,000 stars observed, 61 supernovae documented. Because hey, uh, things are bright over there. Oh, that's that's not a planet uh, going in front of its star. That's a supernova happening. It just happens to notice those too. So well done to Kepler. But um, just a huge, like seriously, in the history of exoplanet study, it is going to go down as this huge contributor because after very limited ground observations, um, very limited uh, discoveries, it just blew the doors uh, wide open.
1: A- absolutely. I mean, you think about... Uh, modern like robotic spacecraft missions and just the sheer number the, the sheer amount that a single one has like changed our view of the universe Kepler leads the list, right? You look through this, the, these numbers, look through this data and it was an incredible success. And, and one that, you know, like we're talking about Hubble a minute ago did struggle with things like gyroscopes. Like, you know, it's this, this, these, this hardware as good as it is, uh, does break down over time, and like Hubble, uh, the team that that runs this mission was able to squeeze more life out of it. You know, we we spoke a while back about even like the second mission, you know, K two being able to continue to use this hardware, past its initial uh, its initial lifespan. You know, that had been envisioned when it was launched is just incredible, and and now we have a, a huge amount of information that. Our solar system is not unique; that we have planets circling a star. You know that idea, not that long ago, seemed like oh, like we're really special because of this. And the answer, thanks to Kepler, is no, we're not. Like the, yeah. that is, you know, uh,
0: there was an absence of. I mean, that, it's one of those things where you're always worried about the uh, the the viewpoint that is entirely uh, human centric, which is mm-hmm. you know we don't know whether whether Earth is an unlikely planet in the universe or not. You would think not, but we didn't know. We didn't know if our solar system looked like other solar systems. It turns out maybe it do- maybe it doesn't, right? Like that's one of the lessons we've gotten is that with these hot Jupiters and things like that, like the composition and the and a lot of things that are kind of super Earth sized or or uh you know between Earth and, and Neptune sized, like There's stuff out there that we don't see in our our solar system, but we didn't know any of that before we started. We couldn't know, you know, we knew that there were probably planets, but like how many and are they common? Are they uncommon? And uh, now we have a a very good idea that they're incredibly common and that some of the details based on what we've observed so far, been able to observe are surprising, which is one of the great things about science is you get confirmation of some things and you get uh, other stuff that you didn't expect at all
1: you know you talked about uh, follow on missions uh TESS uh Transiting uh-huh. Exoplanet Survey Satellite pretty solid acronym <laughs> yeah that's a good acronym i like that i approve of that one uh it it is already doing its thing and you know it's it's not often that we see that we see follow on missions like overlap with what uh with what it's sort of replacing but um you know TESS started uh, way back in 2006 and um, and is well underway, and I think that the number of exoplanets that we uh, that we know of and that we can observe is only going to continue to climb as Tess uh, uncovers more and more of the of the sky.
0: Yeah, totally.
1: It's exciting stuff. See, even in even in sadness, there's a little there's a little uptick of hope. But now yeah. we got to talk about dawn. So. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> Back down into the deep, yes. It's a real roller coaster this week on liftoff. Mm-hmm, space is. space roller coaster mm. is that a thing? Space Mountain, it's at Disneyland. Yeah. Uh, so, Dawn, uh, of course, the mission that studied uh, and did all of its work in the asteroid belt, again, a spacecraft that uh, had an incredible lifespan with incredible science being done, has also met its end, running out of fuel, uh, can no longer control its direction, which is important in a spacecraft. Uh, we haven't talked much. I was actually kind of like looking through our archives. We haven't talked much about Dawn and Liftoff, but it launched in 2007 to study the two largest asteroid belt objects, uh, Vesta and Ceres, uh, the second of which is considered a dwarf planet. And it's the one that, you know, you, you, everyone pictures with the really bright, like reflective spots on it. You know, it's got those couple of areas that like look like they're, that like they're just lit up, that they're glowing. Um, it uh, again studying the surface of that, getting as close as twenty two miles or thirty five kilometers above the surface, which uh, just really blows my mind. <laughs> blows my mind. And you look through some of these pictures. There is like a really nice sort of going away blog post uh, that JPL has put together with some of this imagery, and it's it's just beautiful what this spacecraft was able to uh, to capture in its time. Uh, learning more about. What's going on in the asteroid belt? You know, we, we talk about this in, in terms of uh, uh, the Kuiper belt, but, you know, this, th- these are chunks of, of rock and of, of uh, metal and, and all these materials that, again, come from the solar system being formed. And if we can mm-hmm. understand uh, what they're made of, how they interact, what they are doing, then we can understand more about the solar system that we occupy. And that was Dawn's... Dawn's mission and uh thanks to it we do know more about these uh about you know these sort of small worlds that inhabit the space between between Mars and Jupiter. A section of of you know the solar system that you know may not seem as exciting because they're not full blown planets but they they're, they're a, ho- a whole worlds all into themselves there as we can see from these pictures.
0: Yeah, I mean Ceres uh, is a uh dwarf planet right like it is it is uh a very interesting with the largest asteroids very interesting we learn about the asteroids there's a lot of misinformation about asteroids the asteroid belt that you see in like uh star wars and things like that which is just like a whole field of rocks which is not what it's like and you know it's the gravitational force of jupiter that kind of uh is is in influence there with the asteroids, but there are you know there are interesting objects and and as you said, they are um, they are ways for us to learn about the contents of the solar system and the early solar system. So this is a definitely a cool mission to um, objects that don't get visited. So Dawn is going to continue
1: uh, in orbit around Ceres for uh, at least twenty years, but. Um, JPL says uh, like pretty confident actually could be at least 50 years and there's there's a reason for this so uh, if you remember from Cassini it was plunged into the atmosphere of Saturn to protect to protect those moons there Uh um, because we don't want to uh, put anything that came from earth on any of these bodies that that could harbor life Uh, and for future studies we don't want to tamper what we would discover and so Dawn is going to remain in orbit for that long with the hope of a follow on mission to collect more data uh, before Dawn uh, falls out of orbit. And it's orbiting like 1400 miles from Ceres right now. But uh, over time that, that orbit will, will shift because again, there's no fuel. There's no control. This, this spacecraft is now at, at the mercy of, of the gravity at Ceres and, uh, so, so that's kind of where it is, you know. It's um, it's it's another thing too. We, I like to I like to always mention that even though these missions are over, the data that was collected will be being explored and published about for years to come. Right, we're we're still seeing stuff from Cassini now a year later, and that right. will continue into the future as well because there's so much data collected it just it takes scientists and researchers a long time to sort through it so just because the active collection is done uh, does not mean that these names are going are going to go away quite yet yep
0: yeah absolutely
1: so again good job spaceship uh, you've earned your retirement indeed two two solid spacecraft with really successful missions under their belt
0: so stephen you know a uh, a class of spacecraft that uh, just uh, never seems to run out of time is the is the Soyuz? <laughs> How's that for a transition? It's just—they keep it's on they have been making Soyuz capsules for decades now, and they are the workhorses. They've taken so many people into orbit to the International Space Station, all sorts of different places. But um, actually, while we were in our little interim between the two episodes, because we we had pre-recorded our Apollo episode, there uh, was a. Soyuz mission failure to, uh, two crew going to the international space station and they had a, uh, one of their boosters didn't connect fully on launch on launch when they were transitioning to the second stage. It hit the second stage, set off a whole bunch of bad stuff that they, they basically immediately sensed, popped them off the top. Um, they did what's called a ballistic trajectory, which is yeah, they kind of go up to the the you know their their all their uh, uh, speed bleeds off and then they crash back down uh, back down to Earth and uh, they landed safely, but they pulled some uh, some heavier G's than are normally pulled by astronauts returning to the earth. Um, and that led the uh, the agency responsible for Soyuz, to investigate what what had gone on they did that for three weeks and they have said now that there was a bad sensor to blame that didn't properly signal the separation of the stages on the positive side the um the crew and all the systems required to keep the crew safe functioned well and they were able to walk away at the end uh they were planning for being in you know being in space for a while. And instead they just kind of like saw their family and said, whoops, but they made it home safely, which is good. And, uh, after this investigation, they basically have, um, because the international space station is, is, uh, uh there's an expiration date on the Soyuz capsule. That's at the international space station right now. And they don't ideally don't want to have the ISS be completely abandoned. So they've taken a mission, not with the two guys who are going up, uh, on this last mission but um the next mission which was due mid December they've moved that forward to December 3rd and the idea is that those three people will go up and they will be on the ISS and then the other group that's up there now will return home it it's so wild to me
1: you know watching this go on in the time between our episodes how quickly the Russian space program did complete this investigation you know, you think about when we've seen them here in the U.S. with shuttle failures or even something like uh, SpaceX or, you know, a, another rocket company having a failure, about how long it takes for them to work through it and have a return to flight. And Russia turned this around in like three weeks and they're going to launch again in a month. It, I'm not saying they didn't do their due diligence, but I'm just saying, it seems really quick to me for someone whose only like experience with it is in the American space program. I wonder if part of that is Soyuz is such a um, a thoroughly known system because it's been flying for so long, and because the it, the technology responded correctly and perfectly and brought those crew home safely, that they very clearly identified the problem and feel very confident that it's it's only this sensor only this problem and the rest of it is all okay and they don't have to go through the rest of it with with such a uh a fine tooth comb as the, as you know maybe they did after the shuttle failures I don't know but it's sort of you know is it sort of surprising to me how quickly it's all happened
0: yeah i you know again they know their processes and they know their Equipment, um, but and I definitely think there was a sense of urgency about the fact that they uh, nobody really wants the ISS to be um, empty. Yes, and they're the only way up there right now. Now that may change next year, but they are the only way up there right now. So I think um, you know, I I assume that they figured this one out and that they're not rushing it as much as making sure that they if they can go. Uh, to keep going that they that they want to do that and that, that this is equipment that's been around a long time and they do know uh what the deal is so they were able to spot it pretty quickly.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it, you
1: know I've got no doubt that it that it'll be safe and the Soyuz has such a good track record that one failure like this isn't the end of the program by by any means, uh, especially since as we said it uh, the crew was returned safely that. Like, everything after the failure went the way it was supposed to go, then I think it's easy to still have faith in the system after this failure.
0: Yeah, yeah. But it also shows you that uh, we need to not have all of our eggs in one basket, right? Which yeah. was everybody already knows, and everybody's already working on it, and there's multiple commercial crew things going on for 2019 and beyond. But like, here's an example where um, something goes wrong with Soyuz and access to the International Space Station is closed until it's fixed and that's not great
1: yeah i think it's definitely reminded everyone of the importance of that and you know there's in a world where we're having conversations about the future of the international space station having it be decrewed for any amount of time is, is pretty heavy ammunition on the side of maybe it's time to move past this and uh i think i don't think anyone wanted to see that quite yet so all right, we have promised it. Uh, mm-hmm. We have both seen First Man. Uh, I saw it now a couple of weeks ago, but I've got some notes. You just saw it, so it's I fresh saw in it your this mind. Weekend, yeah, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so yeah, let's let's uh, let's dive into this. Whoa, yeah, whoa. so
0: so First Man uh, movie. Uh, it's it stars Ryan Gosling. It's from Damien Chazelle, who is the guy who directed La La Land, um, which won all the Academy Awards and uh it is a biography of neil armstrong and that is definitely what it is it is neil armstrong's life from when he's a test pilot in the desert in california until after the moon landing that's the the time period and uh, it's not about his his childhood and it's not about how he de- deals with being the first man on the moon afterward it is about that period where he's a test pilot through um through the moon landing and it's interesting because it is a space movie that is also trying very much to be a movie about a particular person Mm -hmm. in a way that apollo 13 is about the mission and all the people involved and and one thing that really struck me more than anything else about first man is it's different in the sense that it's not about the mission or even about nasa it's it is a Uh, I mean, it is a biopic, as they say. It is about this guy, this historical figure. And the point and and all of the choices that are made in the movie are really to try and convey information about and make you think about this character, who is Neil Armstrong. Yeah, It's interesting.
1: So many of these movies revolve around the evolution of the space program. And that's like that's the primary character in a way and this we see just enough of that to put neil armstrong into context right so we don't see the changes that happen between mercury and gemini we see him climbing into a gemini capsule right it's that stuff is is secondary the technology is secondary to yeah. his experience with it and you're right even in something like like a fictional space movie like like interstellar like even that movie has to do a lot more sciencey stuff for the story to work. and I feel like first man didn't have that burden uh, right. and it was a very interesting change of pace for me. Going which into is not
0: it. to say that the science isn't solid because it's rock solid. they yes. all the terminology, all the buttons, you know, everything they do, the fact that they get the master alarm uh, multiple times on their way descending to the surface in the Lem which is totally nerve-wracking that absolutely happened it in, in from the earth to the moon they show the other side of it where the um where the the techs back in Houston are are figuring out what that alarm is and why it doesn't matter and then they radio back but in this we just see them and that definitely part of the point too is to show this doesn't happen for all the space launches because you do see some of the exterior on the Apollo Eleven launch, but during his uh, Gemini mission, or as they all say, Gemini, which is not how you say that word, but that's how they said it. It was a space program thing. Um, the uh, they they do that entirely from his point of view inside. And and we see at several points in the movie we see his point of view. It's like this is what it's like to be inside this, um, helmet. <laughs> not, yeah, not for the whole time, but inside this helmet, inside this experimental spacecraft or or, or, or aircraft. Um, and that's a you know that's a, a very deliberate decision that the filmmakers have have made in order to have you feel like you know this is what the human being. Who is inside this thing experienced? Because we experience so much of this as like you know majestic shots of rockets going off and flames and all of that. And you know in the in there it's shaking, <laughs> and uh, a little tiny window. At one point he puts like a little mirror on in the before the Gemini flight so that he can see the ground. And then you know the mirror then uh as everything is shaking then suddenly you can't see the ground anymore so you know that you've taken off mm-hmm. and then it the mirror flies kind of through the air later to indicate that they have reached weightlessness but uh it's all from that in, interior perspective so it's definitely this is a this is a movie that is about um space exploration and a space explorer but it is at a human scale and it is about trying to understand the um, what it was like to be a person involved in this, um, not just Neil Armstrong, but the, all the people around him, and you know, you and I know enough about this that like when he strikes up a friendship with Elliot C, you're like, oh boy, because he uh, was one of the two astronauts who flew into a uh, a hangar mm-hmm. building in St Louis and died, and then of course one of his closest friends is one of the Apollo One astronauts and and the whole time I'm sitting there going, Oh man. And you know, I don't know, if somebody who doesn't know the history very well, like there's a there's a lot of like just a series of horrible things that happen to Neil Armstrong and you're like, Oh no, but that was his buddy. His buddy's dead? What is this movie doing? But like, that's what happened. That that's what happened to to Ed White is is he was in the the fire for Apollo 1 and Neil Armstrong was at the White House when it happened and got a phone call and was told to to get out of there and go back to the hotel and we see that.
1: And it's it's after the Armstrongs lost a daughter.
0: Yeah, yeah well, I was going to I was going to say that that is where where this movie starts is the personal tragedy that they had a daughter who had cancer and she died and the movie I think and one of the few times when we see this a very stoic person exp- express emotion is that after she after her funeral and people are back at the house, he excuses himself and goes into a room alone. And that's where we see him um, be uh, really emotional for one of the only times in the entire movie. Um, and but it, it is it is a key point to understanding, I think, or trying to understand him is the fact that as he's withstanding all of these horrible tragedies with his colleagues dying around him, um, he's also uh, experienced this incredibly personal tragedy in his own family.
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's right. And I think that the movie does a good job. There's a scene he's, a, I think he's interviewing uh, to become an astronaut and they ask him like, you know, does the loss of your daughter, is it going to have an effect on you? And he's like, I don't know how it couldn't. And I, I like that they dealt with that in a very real way. I think it's tempting to look at these these you know early astronauts and view them just as test pilots,
0: just as like these hardened, like no fear kind of guys. Yeah, this and, macho macho dudes yeah. who are like it doesn't it doesn't matter. I'll, I'm up for anything. I'll do anything. And it is a really telling moment where they're like, you know, sorry. Uh, sorry about your your daughter and he's like was there a question yeah (laughs) and i'm like well will this affect you and he says how could it not how could it right like which is which is so not the answer you're expecting there but it's absolutely the truth Mm -hmm. and and you see it through
1: this movie too because the we're seeing it through his life you see those relationships like you said with guys like like ed white you know you see the relationships between the astronauts and their wives and we we have seen other movies and TV shows deal with that angle of it, but it is front and center here. He's, you know, his home life is a huge part of this movie. Yeah. Um, one thing I, I really think this film does well is moving between spaces. So you see, like you said, like he's in the cockpit of a of a plane, and then he's in a capsule, and it's it's very tight, right? Like you just see a, a gauge filling up the whole screen. and It's shaking violently. You know, it's like. Yeah as he's focusing on it and then you see like there's a, there's a shot where they come out of the, the limb out into the surface of the moon and it goes from a very tight space to a very big space. And it actually goes silent when they do that as, as you, as sort of the vacuum of space takes hold, which is an incredible moment. And I think the movie does, just does a good job of that. Like there's not a set in this film that doesn't feel correct to me whether it's super tight in a capsule or you know in their home or on the surface of the moon all these locations feel very real in this film that um, none of it feels too sterile or or like unreal in a way it feels very grounded in the world that we understand
0: yeah the um, you and I talked a lot about the tight fit of especially gemini right The two guys in a tin can and you know the movie does a great job with that i i agree um it i had a friend who said ah this movie uh, it's terrible It, it it lays out michael collins and it's like michael collins gets like one line in the whole movie i kind of feel bad but it's not about that right it's not this is not apollo 11 the movie and so I kind of forgive it for that, even though, I mean, he does get to say, like, you know, basically, you guys are coming back, right? Like <laughs> Be sure mm-hmm. to come back. Because he is in the unen- unenviable position of being alone in the, ca- in the command module. The whole time that they're doing this and not only does he not get to go land on the moon but he's entirely alone and when he passes behind the uh behind the moon the to the to the far side of the moon he's completely alone and the most isolated human being in human history when that when that moment happens it's a fascinating thing but it's not what this movie's about this movie's about neil armstrong um in fact i was i was surprised that the uh the, the moon landing itself, which is absolutely true that he has to do some work and he's running out of fuel. Um, that that was a place where I felt like I kind of wanted more expansive, like outside the spaceship stuff than I got. But again, that's just not this movie. That's not what this movie is trying to do. It's trying to show him, um, you know, it's not about the toys. It's not about the accomplishments. It's about the person who is behind them using the technology and making the accomplishments and that's that's you know it's kind of relentless and it, it, he's a difficult subject right because he's super stoic and um, you know I think you get to a point in the movie where you kind of want to yell at him like god what is going on in there express some kind of human emotion <laughs> and that is the moment where his wife does that right where his wife basically says you're, you're about to go to the moon maybe or die and they read. There's a scene where the the NASA guys read um, the and and it's great. Kyle Chandler is is a uh, is Deke here, and Kyle Chandler's great in everything he does. But they read the thing that was written for Nixon to say if they died on the moon, um, and then that is kind of juxtaposed with uh, with Neil Armstrong's wife basically saying, "You will sit the boys down before you leave and talk to them about." the risk that you might not come back and he doesn't want to do it. And she basically says, I'm, I'm forcing you to do it. I'm not going to be the one who has to deal with this. And ultimately what happens is he gives his super stoic answers. So like the response to her uh, demanding this is that he doesn't, he still doesn't show it. And finally, one of the boys says, you know, is there a chance you won't come home? And he says, yeah, and that's it. That's all. That's all that he will let out.
1: That's a that's a hard scene to watch, right? Because you you want him to connect with those kids, and right? He just he just he just can't. Like, no. mm-hmm. uh, I don't even think, uh, at least in the context of the movie, that it's uh, you know he doesn't want to or he's trying to protect them. If my reading of that situation is he doesn't have the ability to do so, and uh, yeah,
0: you know I don't think it's just about desire in that moment. Yeah, I mean that is that is one of the fascinating things about watching it is like what is he capable of? What what are what are the tools that that he allows? There is another moment where after the death of Ed White, I want to say, is it after Ed White or maybe it's Ed White comes to him after the death of Elliot C. It's one of those where there is a moment where it's like you want to go have a beer, um, and he you know he gives him this look. And it's like, oh, it's Neil Armstrong, right? Forget it, never mind, never mind. And he says, no, I could, I could use a beer. And he goes, and it's like, whoa, he cracked just a little bit, um, as opposed to the other scene, which is um, where after, and this one's definitely after Elliot C. I want to say, where Ed White comes into the backyard because he, it's actually really fascinating because you can see that he has emotions but he doesn't know how to express them and he doesn't want to express them in front of other people and so he actually goes to his wife at the uh at the house where they're having the gathering after after the funeral of elliot c and he says to his wife who's cleaning up helping the helping clean up in the kitchen he's like i need to go and she's like i gotta i i yeah yeah i i'm gonna need a few more minutes to clean up in here and he just leaves he just gets mm-hmm. in the car and leaves. And when they go back to the Armstrongs' house, and it's the it's Ed White and his wife that bring Neil Armstrong's wife with uh, and with them. Um, and Ed White goes in the backyard and and like starts to talk, strike up a conversation, and we see some genuine anger in Neil Armstrong, who basically says, "What about me leaving the party?" gave you the impression that i wanted to talk to somebody Mm -hmm. what about what about me standing alone in my backyard gave you the impression that i wanted to talk to to somebody and it's fascinating because the answer is because sometimes human beings (laughs) need to let their feelings out (laughs) neil armstrong (laughs) but in this case uh nope (laughs) he doesn't he doesn't want to do that it's just it's fascinating right because you do get the sense of this guy and you're like wow like the stuff that he kept inside or didn't have the tools to deal with. We sort of see that.
1: We see, we see that storyline and then the astronaut space agency storyline sort of uh, come together. And um, when they're on the moon, and I guess like, I don't know if at some point in the past we blew the spoiler horn, but we're going to spoil the ending now. It's been oh, yeah, a while. Yeah. Did so. you know they landed on
0: the moon? Oh, no, yeah. I spoiled yeah. it. Done. Uh, wasn't a hoax spoilers for 1969
1: yeah well spoilers for this the way the movie handles it i guess true uh where we see him uh on the moon they've landed they've gone through that I, i will say even though i have you know know all sorts of about this mission uh anytime i see the uh hey, we're out of fuel and the master alarm going off as they're trying to land on the moon, it's always stressful to me. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely felt that way watching this film. I was like, oh, are they going to make it? It's like, yes, of course they are because this is a movie based on a thing that happened. But it's sort of a funny uh, aside. But we see him sort of finally say goodbye to his daughter on the moon. And uh, the the movie portrays this as he has... I guess, like smuggled in uh, a bracelet that she had or, or something with her name on it that, you know, he had kept yeah. in a drawer locked
0: away. So in that scene where he's overcome with emotion after they've had the kind of like wake after the the uh, her funeral, um, what he we see that he's got her little um charm bracelet, basically. Mm-hmm. And... um and so, yeah, that and and as the movie's going on, I'm like, oh, boy, there is that what is going to happen here? Because that's a very movie thing to do. Um, but, uh, yes, that is the guy who can't express his emotions very well at all has brought his dead daughter's bracelet to the moon to leave. Yeah. A lot of moon dust in the theater when that scene was playing. Got a little uh, got a little dusty in there. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was a
1: it was a nice moment. And it's. Uh, there're two things people are talking about this movie. We we'll, we we'll can talk about the flag in a second if you want, but uh there is there are a lot of uh, articles and even some YouTube videos about this scene and how how accurate it was or how you know like did it actually happen did did Armstrong actually do this and people involved uh so so the book that that it's Sort of based on uh, written by James Hansen. Uh, Hansen seemed to think that Neil did leave something of Karen, his daughter, uh, something of hers on the moon uh, to, in some way. And, and he felt convinced of that, although he didn't have any, uh, there was no hard evidence of that, but he did have conversations uh, with Neil. Uh, with his wife at the time and and other family members that believe that this may have happened Uh, but I don't think anyone can say for sure uh, that it did but it that doesn't really bother me in this movie like you know the rest of like you said the science and the history is spot on in this movie even if this part isn't true or if it's embellished it, it doesn't spoil the movie for me really in any way and I'm curious how you feel about that
0: Well, I, yeah, I mean, I would like it to be based on truth only because it is a, it is a huge, in a movie that is full of drama that is not manufactured because it really happened, it would be a shame if after this entire careful observation of this human being and what he does and what he doesn't do, that the big moment that happens where he, expresses in a way his emotions and how much the he carries the death of his daughter with him if that was manufactured right like that's the problem i would have with it is it makes for a powerful moment but i feel like when you're in a movie full of powerful moments if it's entirely manufactured uh i don't i i I don't like that if it's what movies tend to do is simplify things because it's a movie, right? So if that's the case here whereas like, yeah, he brought a thing in a plastic bag and got it out at some point and laid it down on the ground and all that. And what he didn't do is take a bracelet that, you know, that is just exposed and not in a not in a container or anything and drop it into a, a you know, the side of a, a dark crater. Like it's the details that are that are wrong, but the sentiment is right. Then I don't have a problem with it.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I I think that's fair. You know, and Hanson, who wrote who wrote uh, a book on Armstrong with Armstrong's involvement, felt convinced that some there's something to that, you know, something happened. Hmm. Um, And so, yeah, uh, well, we will probably never know. Right. But it is uh, it does feel like it is at least possible. So,
0: yeah, I I wanted to mention, since we're talking about uh, being on the moon. Uh, so Corey Stoll plays Buzz Aldrin, and that is a fascinating performance because Buzz yeah. Aldrin is performed, I think, probably accurately as this guy who just uh, doesn't know when to stop talking oh and doesn't yeah. know what to not talk about. And there are some, several amazing moments when horrible things have happened and people have died where he just has observations about it that are not. And again, he's like, what? What We're all thinking it. Uh, and, and, and I think Armstrong says, maybe don't say it. Like, right. Um, and that, that, and of course he ends up as the guy in the other seat in Apollo 11 is that, that guy who obviously had a lot going for him because the way he's portrayed is very much like, he's just kind of awful um, because he won't stop talking about all these things that, I mean, the, the argument there too, is that it's such a contrast, right? Like he won't, he has no inner monologue buzz aldrin in this movie he just says things that every everybody's thinking it but he says it whereas neil armstrong is the complete opposite he is completely uh he is completely locked down
1: mm. it is interesting yeah there's some real uh cringe cringeworthy mm. moments with this this version yeah. of uh of buzz but yeah
0: i would say I, I wanted to say i like claire foy who is who is janet and neil oh, armstrong's wife i think she i think she does people may know her from uh the crown where she played the queen, but uh, I think she does a good job in this. I think you can see her, um, the burden that she bears, as not just you know you've got a test pilot slash astronaut husband who is going off to and and is far away, and they're they're raising their children, and of course she lost her daughter too, but also the burden she bears in being a, you know, in having her husband be this bottled up person emotionally and Mm -hmm. sometimes having to be the person who carries the emotional burden, which does lead her to that breaking point where she says, you're going to sit down and talk to the boys. I'm not going to do this for you. Um, And it becomes clear there. I I like that performance too. I mean, in addition to, yeah, in addition to Corey Stoll being (laughs) loudmouth Buzz Aldrin and like I mentioned, Kyle Chandler earlier, um, some some interesting performances from uh, good actors in this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh I, I really liked her performance. I always I felt that her her responses to him all felt genuine. That we could all be in her shoes and we would all like do what she did, basically. Like you can give him space to a degree, but at some point you have to you gotta have the conversation. And I think it, it was all handled uh very well on her part. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we, I don't want to talk about the flag thing, but I feel like we have to uh, when this movie uh, first uh, showed up back in like September, I think this, this broke. Uh, there was a, a story that the uh, there's not a scene of Armstrong and Aldrin playing the flag on the moon. The, the flag is visible in several shots, uh, but that that sequence is not in
0: the the movie. and some people freaked out and it felt overblown and silly. Yeah, and there is there is indeed a shot of the flag in the final movie. On there's a there's a long shot of the lander on the surface with the flag and the astronauts on it. It's right there. Yeah, it's uh, fine. And everybody's got patches uh, in various parts of their uniforms and on the sides of craft and things that have the U.S. flag and all that. And it's it's definitely the case where it's basically somebody who wants to uh, to make a political point and rile people up to make a controversy where there isn't one. The fact is, this whole movie is about. Um, the space program and the bravery of the people who were in it. And they're all Americans and it's an American program and America sent uh, people to the moon. And there's really, I mean, this is, this is the very definition of a non event and some kind of, I would say sad person who feels like everything has to be um, manufactured outrage for, uh based on again based on not seeing the movie but just uh you know rumor or conjecture all that and i think you know maybe the argument here is um how dare somebody make a movie that isn't that is about american greatness without having it be explicitly just about american greatness It's like Mm. okay well kind (laughs) of not the point here but you're marinating in it when you're when you're walking through um gemini and apollo with neil armstrong but what um I would say anybody who thinks that a carefully detailed biography of Neil Armstrong, the American who will forever be known as the first human being to set foot on another body in space, um, to, to, do, <laughs> to look at that and think that that's not good enough in some way, uh, not, not flag-wavy, not jingoistic enough those people aren't worth your time. It's ridiculous. So I think we liked it. Yeah. I didn't love it because I don't know if this is a movie that wants you to love it because it's about Neil Armstrong who doesn't want to, you know, it is, it is about a guy with a shell and um, it is not, it does not have that rousing patriotic moment where the music swells like an Apollo 13, because it's, you know, it's a personal story. Uh, about a, a guy who's got some some interesting personality quirks, but I did feel like I um, I was riveted to uh, to watching Neil Armstrong and trying to understand what makes him tick amid all of these things, and also just knowing all the all the tragedy. Because ultimately, I think it, beyond just being about him, it is you definitely get the sense from this. Like for all of our cheer about Apollo and the incredible um, incredible achievement it was if you're a human being on the inside you lost friends mm-hmm. multiple times people died as a part of this program leaving aside his personal history and the death of his daughter like colleagues died many times <laughs> over the course of just a just like a handful of years and it, de- you definitely walk away with that. Like, what is the emotional cost? Even if you're a big, tough test pilot of having so many of the people, five of the people that you worked with died in the course of four years. Like, that's the facts of Apollo. And people don't talk about it, but it's there. And this movie doesn't let you forget the emotional toll that it must have taken on everybody um, in a high-stress environment like this.
1: Yeah, I think that's... Uh think that's a good place to to sum it up it's yeah. it's it's a movie that is i don't think is going to show up in anyone's like regular rotation like hey let's sit down and watch first man because mm. it is it is heavy and it is it is different from something like apollo 13 apollo 13 has because the story is so wild right it is sort of it is a story that has uh if kind of made for a movie, like in a way, right? Like there's this big yeah. danger and they have to work their way through it, everyone's safe at the end. And first man just not structured like that. And yeah,
0: it's not it's not Apollo eleven. Right. It is it is different. Um I when I was a kid, first time like in seventh grade or something, they talked about like the different kinds of stories you can tell and it's like man versus man, man versus nature, man mm-hmm. versus himself, those that that idea. Apollo thirteen is man versus nature, I would argue. And a uh, first man is man versus himself. That's it. It's just, that's it. That's the difference is this is about a guy and his own struggles with himself in and navigating this world. And it's all a carefully observed uh, character study in a way that something like a Apollo 13 is not. It's just that's different kind of movie entirely. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, I think that does it. Yeah. All right. Well, so next week we'll be back with another big movie review. Nope. <laughs> the movie, space movie podcast. <laughs> yeah, sure. We could do that, but we won't because there'll be more news in the next couple of weeks. And um, and also there's more Apollo coming up. We should point out to everybody, um, if you did enjoy our Apollo episode that we did last time, we'll be back in December, so in a month and a half. Uh, and uh, we'll we'll go on to the next one because as First Man reminded me as I sat there watching it, it was like, oh boy the pace of these Apollo missions just keeps on going. That Mm -hmm. means that our Apollo episodes are just going to keep on going. We've got so many Apollo episodes, Stephen, between now and next July when we do Apollo
1: 11. (laughs) A bunch more to do. Uh, Until then, though, if you want to find links to stuff we talked about, you can head to the website, relay.fm slash liftoff slash while you're there, you can get in touch via email or you can find a link to our Tumblr where Jason and I post space stories in between uh, in between episodes of the show. You can find us on Twitter. Jason is at JSnell and you can find me there as ISMH. Until our next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios.